Take charge of your thoughts. Take charge of your life. Psychologist, author, speaker, musician, former professor, and the host of Love and Life, Dr. Karen Anderson Abril. Welcome to Dr. Karen Love and Life. I'm Dr. Karen Anderson Abril. Today on the program, I'm pleased to welcome Dr. Leonard Sachs. Dr. Sachs has spoken on issues of child and adolescent development, not only in the United States, but also in Australia, Bermuda, Canada, England, Germany, Italy, Mexico, New Zealand, Scotland, Spain, and Switzerland. He's appeared on the Today Show, CNN, National Public Radio, PBS, Fox News, Fox Business, the BBC, CBC, the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, New Zealand Television, and many other national and international media. He's the author of several books, Why Gender Matters, Boys Adrift, Girls on the Edge, and The Collapse of Parenting. He graduated from MIT at age 19 and then went on to the University of Pennsylvania, where he earned both a PhD in psychology and an MD. Dr. Sachs, welcome to the program. Thanks for inviting me. I'm really pleased to have you on. I want to let listeners know, just take a minute just to let them know how I came across your work. Because a few months ago, I found your book, The Collapse of Parenting. I was just browsing through some the stacks of the library. And I devoured the book very quickly. And I found everything that you presented very convincing and compelling in terms of explaining what we're seeing with parenting today and with how kids are being affected by the parenting that they're receiving. And so I bought several books and started passing them out to people I know. And that that in and of itself isn't that unusual because I am that person who gets excited about a book and then wants to share it with all my friends who I think might benefit from it. But what was unusual was that I actually got on your website and I thought, man, I would love to hear this man speak if he's doing any seminars or anything like that. And I did find that you were conducting a seminar in Springfield, Ohio at the Rocking Horse Community Center. So I promptly registered and drove four hours <laughs> to hear you <laughs> hear you speak, which I think may make me one of your biggest fans that you didn't even know you had. But, <laughs> but I share all this because I want my listeners to understand just how firmly I believe in your message and how important it is. And so, again, it's a true honor to have you on the program. So thank you again for your time. Thank you. Well, I wanted to start with an overarching question. And I, and I frankly wish more parents would ask themselves this which is, what is the purpose of parenting? And I hear a lot of parents say things that make me cringe. They say things like, I just want my kid to be happy. I just want her to be happy. (laughs) And when I read your book, I found a lot of support for why that makes me cringe. Can you explain a little bit more about that? Sure. What is the purpose of parenting? What should parents' top priority be with regard to raising their child? You know, until recently, the answer to that question would have been a guess or uh, a matter of opinion or maybe the subject of a sermon. But uh, uh, we now have very good research that allows us to ground the answer in uh, empirical evidence. And the research I'm talking about is a number, actually a large number, 
of what are called longitudinal cohort studies. These are studies where researchers recruit a large number of kids early in life and then follow them right through adolescence into adulthood, right up until 32, 35, 38 years of age. Huge studies involving millions of hours of work over 30 to 40 years. Uh, and when these kids are children, like at age 12, you interview them and you assess them and you get validated measures of things like, to what extent is this kid friendly? To what extent is this kid a good student earning good marks? Are they open to new ideas? How stable are they emotionally? Uh, to what extent do they demonstrate self-control? And you get this information not just by interviewing the kid, but also by interviewing classmates, teachers, parents, just a huge wealth of information. And then you follow this kid for another 20 years until he's 32 years old. And at age 32, you track them down. They're now adults, of course. And you determine for each of these individuals their health, their wealth, their happiness, life satisfaction. What parameter, what characteristic of a child at 12 years of age powerfully predicts health and wealth and happiness 20 years down the road? Is it the kind of grades they're earning in school? Is it how friendly they are? Is it their openness to new ideas? Is it emotional stability? No, it turns out it's none of those things. It is self-control and other measures of conscientiousness like honesty. And that's a surprise to many people. When I speak to parents, I'll often begin by explaining a longitudinal cohort study, and then I'll, I'll give them five or six choices and ask them to raise their hands, which do they think predicts outcomes. And many parents don't know the answer. They don't know that self-control and honesty predict good outcomes much more powerfully than the grades you get in school, uh, by uh, then by openness to new ideas. Now, those are great things. It's great to be open to new ideas. It's great to earn good marks in school. But empirically and objectively, that doesn't predict health, wealth, and happiness. So it follows, I think, pretty straightforward that our first priority as parents should be to teach self-control and honesty to our child. And that's not a sermon. And it's not a guess. It's robust empirical finding. I devote two chapters of my book, The Collapse of Parenting, to reviewing every relevant longitudinal cohort study. And there are many. And every one of them comes to the same conclusion, that conscientiousness, meaning self-control and honesty, predicts good outcomes long-term, much more so than any other malleable trait. Uh, you know, you can't change your child's height or uh, you can't easily change your household income. Uh, we're talking about traits that you can change. And it turns out that self-control is very amenable to change. You can improve your child's self-control. How do you improve a child's self-control? You say, no dessert until you eat your vegetables. No games until the chores are done and the homework is done. Now, if that hasn't been the practice in your home and you say those things, there will be an explosion. And the older the child, the bigger the explosion. But if both parents stand their ground, if there are two parents and they both stand their ground, after six weeks, you will have a child with better self-control 
This is not a guess. We've got good research on this point. And of course, I've got 31 years of clinical experience as a physician and psychologist. I've seen this. If both parents stand their ground in six weeks, you have a child with better self-control and you will have a happier and better functioning family. Hi, this is Bruni Getchell, life coach and clinical hypnotherapist from Boston, Massachusetts. And I listen to Dr. Karen's podcast, Love and Life. What I love about your books is that you incorporate the research, which I'm a psychologist, so I need that because someone's opinion is interesting to me, but it's not going to motivate me to make a change in my thinking or my behavior. But the research will do that. And you present it in such a very uh, manageable way so that someone who's not a psychologist or hasn't had any kind of interest or maybe took Psych 101 and that was it, but they can still digest the information. And and I love also you present the problem and you also provide solutions because that's also frustrating for parents sometimes when academic types come and present all this data and go, there's the picture. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> but you provide some great takeaway messages for parents. And so again, that's one of the reasons I wanted to pass around your book. But when you talk about all this, to my mind, I think some of this sounds so basic. How is it that parents stopped disciplining and stopped encouraging their children to have self-control and, and stopped trying to provide children opportunities to develop self-control and discipline themselves. Can you talk about that a little bit, some of the cultural shifts? Culture is the key. American culture shifted in ways that had the unintended consequence of really undermining the family. Yes. And I defend that statement with, a, with several different lines of research in my book, The Collapse of Parenting. But let me just tell you one, and that is the most popular television shows. Uh, 50 years ago, the most popular television shows in the United States were shows like uh, The Andy Griffith Show, My Three Sons, Father Knows Best. Those shows consistently portrayed the parents as knowledgeable, competent, reliable, productive, caring, kind. In writing The Collapse of Parenting, I uh, looked at the 150 most popular shows currently on American television, not one of them consistently or even often portrays a parent as knowledgeable, competent, caring, uh, productive, whether it's The Simpsons or the Disney Channel. Uh, on the Disney Channel, shows like Dog with a Blog or Live and Maddie consistently portray the parents as clueless, out of touch, uh, and the parents do stupid, ridiculous things that the kids laugh at. And we are supposed to laugh along with the kids at how clueless and ignorant the parents are. Right. Um, modern family. I mean, you could just go on and on about all these popular shows on American television that consistently portray parents as clueless, especially fathers, as clueless idiots and the children, the teenagers are knowledgeable and insightful and giving good advice to their parents who are often too dumb to listen. Uh, that's one of many aspects of American culture. The first chapter of my book, The Collapse of Parenting, is titled The Culture of Disrespect. You know, in writing my book, Boys Adrift, I talked to a number of cultural anthropologists. These are people who have spent their lives studying how other people have lived in different times, different places. And uh, like Gilbert Hurt and uh, especially David Gilmore at the State University of New York at Stony Brook. 
And I asked Dr. Gilmore, I said, talk to me about cultures that last. Do they have anything in common? Well, if you ask that question in terms of what they eat, what they drink, or what their religious beliefs are, the answer is no. There's nothing that all enduring cultures share on those parameters. But there is one thing that all enduring cultures do share, enduring cultures. They share strong bonds of respect across generations, strong bonds across generations. And that used to be true in the United States. This is not nostalgia. Again, we have good research from people like Robert Putnam at Harvard, who spent 20 years leading an army of graduate students across the United States, conducting more than 200,000 structured interviews, showing that indeed 50 years ago, there were many institutions uh, that created these strong bonds across generations. And every one of them, just about everyone has disintegrated, has dissolved. Uh, his most famous example is bowling. Uh, 50 years ago, the bowling, uh, most of the bowling that happened in the United States was in bowling leagues. And Tuesday night might be the women's night, and Thursday night was the men's night. And he digs up who was in the bowling, who was on a team in the bowling league in Lake Forest, Illinois, 50 years ago. Well, there were, on this particular team, there was a 53-year-old woman, a 41-year-old woman, a 27-year-old woman, a 17-year-old girl, and a 12-year-old girl. Kids today still go bowling, but they go Bowling Alone, the title of Dr. Putnam's best-known book, meaning not literally alone, but instead of this 17-year-old girl going bowling with a community of women, she's going bowling with a bunch of 17-year-olds, girls and boys mixed together, which as far as Dr. Putnam is concerned, is bowling alone. When Dr. Putnam uses the word community, he means bonds across generations, and the bonds across generations have been broken. The bonds across generations have been broken, and in its place, we have a culture disrespect that actively undermines the ability of parents to do their job. So parents today are facing a job much harder than parents did just 20 years ago. You know, I've been, as I've said, I've met a medical doctor in this country for 31 years. I have witnessed the collapse of parenting firsthand. 20 years ago, a parent it wasn't at all unusual for an American parent to say to their kids something like, do unto others. That's not a question or a suggestion. It's a command. But today, over the past 20 years, I have found that question has softened, has morphed. That command has softened, has morphed into a question. And the question is often something like, well, how would you feel if someone did that to you? And the parent has no answer when, they, when their son responds, if someone did that to me, I'd kick him in the nuts and then I'd sit on his face. Uh, <laughs> the culture combined with the breaking of bonds across generations has made the job of the American parent much more difficult. And the result is many American parents follow the path of least resistant and have abdicated their authority with many awful consequences for children. No question. Uh, it reminds me of something I remember you talking about, and you mentioned in your book as well, this, this notion of prioritizing of peers over parents. And you bring up a study that was fascinating to me and quite troubling that in the 60s, if all your friends wanted to join a club, you ask kids this question. If all your friends wanted to join a club, but your parents didn't want you to, would you join? And in the 60s, kids would say, no, no, of course not, because they cared more about what their parents thought as opposed to their peers. But the opposite is true now. And I think you mentioned that kids just laugh at the notion that they wouldn't join some online Facebook group if parents didn't agree. They find that hilarious. 
That's absolutely right. That was a study by researchers from Johns Hopkins, go, again, going nationwide across the United States 50 years ago and asking uh, kids if all your parents, if all your friends wanted you to join a particular club, but one of your parents did not approve, would you still join? And 50 years ago, the majority of American teens said no, they would not join because the good opinion of their parents mattered more than the combined opinion of all their kids, uh, of all their friends. Uh, but since 2007, I have been asking uh, kids, and I have now visited more than 400 schools over the last 16 years. So beginning in 2007, I started asking middle school kids and high school kids, if all your friends wanted you to sign up for a particular social media site, would you consult your parents first? And the most common answer I got from American kids wasn't yes, wasn't no, it was laughter. They literally burst out laughing, as you noted. Uh, one girl said, my parents would probably think Ask FM is some kind of radio station. Why would I ask them? I mean, these kids may say that they love their parents, uh, but the opinion of peers matters more. And that is a huge change from American culture uh, 30 years ago or 50 years ago. And again, American parents, most of them don't get it, don't understand this. And unfortunately, they are contributing to this prioritizing of same-age peer relations. It is common to find an American parent picking up their seven-year-old from school and driving the seven-year-old to soccer practice and then to a play date, and they're eating what passes for supper in the car on their way from soccer practice to the play date. And the unintended message is that same-age peer relations, hanging out with your friend, is more important than time at home with family. And that's a terrible message uh, to send. And what I say to those parents is cancel the play date. Make a family date instead. Right. Dr. Karen Anderson Abril. I'd love to connect with you on social media. On Instagram, I'm at Dr. Karen, D-R dot K-A-R-I-N. Here I share my thoughts on love and life through original quotes and images. I'd love to have you join the conversation. On Twitter, I'm at Dr. Karen Anderson. You can find me live tweeting my favorite shows, This Is Us, Will and & Grace, and My Guilty Pleasure. All shows Bachelor Nation. On Facebook, I'm at Dr. Karen Anderson Abril. There, you can read my blog, see where I'm speaking, and find links to others' podcasts when I'm a guest on their show. It reminds me of something else that you mentioned is that there, the other unintended consequence that is so hard to see when you're in it, like anything, the objectivity that we can see as onlookers and as researchers is something you bring up that's so important. And you speak to the fragility of kids nowadays. And we've all seen this. Some call them snowflakes, or we see this on college campuses, that this fragility, and you're attributing it to the idea that when the parent-child relationship is strong, when the parents matter to the kid, when there's that respect in place, the kid feels safer. Yeah. When the peers are the priority, the kid's not safe. Yeah. Let me give an example that I found is very useful in helping people understand how prioritizing same-age peer relations leads to fr fragility. Yeah. Uh, so a girl comes home from school and she's very upset, elementary school girl. Uh, she's very upset because she found out that all the other girls, everyone had been talking about this girl had been talking for weeks about this amazing birthday party she was going to have. And this girl assumes she's going to be invited, but she's not. She discovers she's not invited. She believes all the other girls were invited and she's not invited. And she's really upset. She comes home and tells 
her mother, all the other girls were invited to the birthday party. And I was the only girl who wasn't invited. What should you do in that situation? Unfortunately, what many American parents now do, and they read something somewhere that good parenting means showing that you understand and affirm your child's feelings. Uh, and so many American parents, and we can talk about what that means and how parents misunderstand that, but many American parents, their daughter says, I'm really upset. All the other girls got invited and I wasn't invited. I'm the only girl who's not invited. Many American parents now say, oh, honey, that's so terrible. Oh, I'm so sorry. And now both of you burst into tears, parent <laughs> and child, because you've just taught your child that whether or not you get invited to the party is a really big deal. It's like the most important thing in the whole world. And if you don't get invited, then you should burst into tears. You are causing your child to be fragile. Look, same age peer relations among children are ephem ephemeral and contingent. They can change overnight. And if you're teaching your child that whether or not you get invited to the party is a really big deal, you are setting her up to be fragile. What is best practice? I submit that best practice, if your child comes home and says, hey, all the other girls were invited to party. It was a week from Saturday. I was planning on going, but I just found out I'm not invited. I submit best practices to say, okay, week from Saturday, you know, you and I have been talking about that new bike path. Uh, you, me, a week from Saturday. Let's write it on the calendar. You, me, bike path, Saturday afternoon. We're going. Walk it off. It's not a big deal. Whether or not you get invited to a party is not that important. The parent-child relationship is much more important. You don't teach that by preaching it. You teach it by showing it. And this is simple, but most American parents now really do not understand this. In other countries, they do. When I've spoken on this topic in Scotland, in Switzerland, in Germany, in Australia, in New Zealand, I find that parents there are totally on board and are comfortable doing these things. But American parents are like, oh, I could never do that. It's so troubling because it, I think it's wrapped up in another comment I hear from parents sometimes. Well, I want my child to trust me and to be able to confide in me. And so they, they lower their own hierarchy within the home and try to come at their kid as a friend. And then and what you're saying is then they are demoting themselves, so to speak. And so then they're putting themselves on the same level as the kid. And so, yeah, since my my best friend is my daughter and she didn't get invited to her best friend's party, and it is tragic, rather than saying, no, like you're saying, what is happening in this home and our relationship is infinitely more important than this, like you're saying, ephemeral fifth grade friendship that's going to be gone next year anyway. And, and so they're taking away their own power to affect their children positively. Well, let's talk about that phrase you just mentioned. I want to be my kid's best friend. We get a little trick, tripped up by the language, by the semantics here, because of course you want to have a loving and close relationship with your child as you should. Of course you want your child to confide in you as you should. But let's be clear. A friend is a peer. A friend cannot command. A friend can't say, I'm not going to allow you to pig out on ice cream right before supper. A friend can't say, I'm not going to allow you to stay up till three in the morning playing video games. Only a parent 
can say those things and a parent must say those things. So you have to understand if you like the professional boundaries. Being a parent is a kind of profession. It has best practices. It has evidence. It is an art. There's an art of parenting, just like there's an art of medicine. But parenting, like medicine, should be informed by research, by evidence, by outcomes, especially in this era when the culture actively undermines good parenting. Uh, so the art of parenting requires that you understand where to draw boundaries. Yes, your child should be able to confide in you and you should be ready. And, and if she's going to confide in you, put aside whatever you're doing and sit down and look her in the eye and communicate, I have nothing more important than listening to what you have to say to me. And she wants to talk to you about how all the other girls are being mean to her in the cafeteria. And you, you nod and you show that you understand and you care and you're listening. That's fine. But you do not then turn and confide in you and say, oh, you think that's bad? Let me tell you how the other employers are treating me in a lounge at lunchtime. You do not confide in your daughter as she confided in you. You have to maintain, so to speak, the professional boundaries of being a parent. And again, so many parents, American parents, uniquely American parents, are confused on this point. And they think that to be my daughter's confidant, I must abolish any authority and uh, simply become another peer. And those parents really misunderstand their role. Look, what is the point of childhood? Why, why is childhood? Why, why is childhood? Question mark. Um, right. You know, a, and again, this is a topic I address and answer in the first chapter of The Collapse of Parenting. A four-year-old horse is a mature adult. A four-year-old child has barely begun. And a horse is a much bigger animal than a human. Why? What is the point? Why is human childhood longer than the lifetimes of many uh, mammals? Well, we don't have to guess. We have researchers who have studied this question and who have answered it. And the answer they give is that human childhood is as long as it is because it takes many, many years for parents to teach the parents' culture to the child. That's your job. This is not a matter of opinion. This is intrinsic to what it means to be human. It's what distinguishes our species from every other's. A, a very lengthy childhood is there in order for parents to teach children, and yet many American parents now abdicate that responsibility. In that chapter, I cite a op-ed by a regular columnist for the New York Times, Jennifer Finney Boylan, and she writes in her uh, op-ed, she says, enlightened parenting means setting your child free to discover for themselves their own right and wrong. And if in so doing they become a stranger to you, then so be it. And that's very nearly a direct quote because I've quoted her essay many times. <laughs> and that may sound enlightened to some, but it is not. It is a dereliction of duty. If you set your child free to discover for themselves their own right and wrong, and you live in the United States, what they're going to uh, discover is Akon, Eminem, 50 Cent, Justin Chim Timberlake, Miley Cyrus, uh, Nicki Minaj, mainstream pornography. You are not doing your child any favors. On the contrary, you are undermining their moral development. It is your job to be the parent, and that is different from the job of the best friend. There's any number of kids out there who can be your kid's best friend, but none of them 
can do the job of the parent. That's your job. You need to understand what your job. And I'll give you a very, very specific and concrete example. Is it okay for your teenager to take their cell phone into the bedroom with them? No, it's not. Uh, this is not just my opinion. This is the official guidelines of the American Academy of Pediatrics. Kids should not be taking their phone into the bedroom with them. And yet many, many American teens do. And at two in the morning, your daughter's getting a text. OMG, Justin and Emily just broke up. This is really big news. We'll have to talk about it. And your daughter's <laughs> up for an hour in the middle of the night exchanging text messages. Look, the rules of good parenting have not changed in 20 years. 20 years ago, a girl could not accept a phone call at two in the morning to exchange gossip for an hour in the middle of the night because the phone would ring and the parents would not allow it because they knew it's more important for a kid to get a good night's sleep than for them to be up for an hour in the middle of the night exchanging gossip. That was true 20 years ago. And it's just as true today. The only thing that has changed is the technology. It's now very easy for your daughter to accept that text message at two in the morning because the phone never rang. It buzzed. She has it on vibrate mode. And uh, she's not talking. She's texting. But just because it's easy doesn't mean it should happen. This is the job of the parent. At nine o'clock at night, at the very latest, you turn off the phone. You put it in the charger, which stays in the parent's bedroom. She can have it back tomorrow morning. And this is the job of the parent. Uh, some parents will say, oh, well, you know, I think it's important to let kids decide. And they, and my daughter doesn't think that that's a good idea. So she takes her phone to the bedroom with her. Look, it is not fair. It is not reasonable to put the, the burden of that decision in the lap of your 14-year-old. Yes. What is she supposed to say tomorrow morning in school when her friend says, hey, I texted you last night at midnight. How come you didn't answer? Is your 14-year-old supposed to say, well, researchers have found that sleep deprivation in adolescence is a major risk factor for uh, depression and anxiety. Come on, that's ridiculous. You have to allow her to say, hey, my evil parents take my phone every night at nine and won't have it back till the next morning. It is your job to be the evil parent. Nobody else can do this job. And yet this is a point that many, many American parents misunderstand. Again, when I speak on this topic in Scotland, in New Zealand, most parents there would never dream of allowing kids to take their phones to bed with them. Incidentally, kids in Scotland are just as likely to have mobile phones as kids in the United States, but they are much, much less likely to take them to bed with them. They get about an hour and a half more sleep a night than American kids do. Which is related to so many other concerns. I I remember when I went to the parent seminar that I uh, saw in Springfield when I came to see you speak. And I'll be honest, I did not say I was ready to just standing ovation. This is fantastic information. This is going to help parents everywhere. And I sensed a little pushback at times. Um, and I think it has to do with these cultural changes that parents have stepped into unwittingly. And, and again, it, I don't like that it makes us, as you put it, sound like we're just nostalgic for the good old days. I, uh, When I speak to parents, I'm always careful to include a disclaimer early in the talk that 50 years ago were not the good old days. That era was much more racist and much more sexist than our own era is. Uh, there are no good old days. Every era has its challenges. 
But I don't think we're recognizing the challenges of this era. You know, 50 years ago, we had men like Dr. Martin Luther King who were trying to explain to us the evils of racism and try, trying to change the society. I don't see anyone of that caliber who understands the challenges now affecting American culture with regard to how parents are raising their kids and the enormous consequences. I'm Audrey Mad Cronin, creator of mobile app Like So, your personal speech coach. My mission is to empower all of us to express ourselves articulately and with confidence, which is exactly why I'm a fan of Love and Life and Dr. Karen's philosophy of taking charge. Dr. Sachs had so much great information for us, we've decided to present the rest of the conversation in a subsequent episode. Next time, Dr. Sachs covers the following. Why are so many kids diagnosed with ADHD, bipolar, and oppositional defiant disorder? How does social media usage affect our children? Do boys and girls consume and respond to social media differently? And what about the research? What do the latest longitudinal studies tell us about child development over the last 10 years since the first smartphones were introduced? Join us next time. The love and life hack for this week is... Be a parent. Your kid has plenty of friends. Be their parent. Take charge of your thoughts. Take charge of your life. This is Dr. Karen Anderson Abral. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, make it a great week. Dr. Karen Love and Life is produced by Chip Gregory, senior producer Michelle Musso, and host and executive producer Dr. Karen Anderson Abril.